Hi, everyone. Welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rurkraut. I'm Sophia Simonello. And today we're back with another award season release roundup. We have three more movies to talk about today, and those will be Bones and All, The Fablemans, and She Said. I think this is a great mix of movies, not only of their subject matter, but also because through the award season so far, they've all been praised pretty highly. And despite what box office numbers might say, they all are certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. They all have an 87% or higher be it audience or critic reviews. And I think they're all that we would really, really recommend that people see. They might be smaller movies, but that doesn't mean they're not going to dazzle you on the screen. Dazzling images on a silver screen, (laughs) indeed. (laughs) But yeah, I agree with you. I really enjoyed all three of these movies. They couldn't be more different, but I feel like they are all very accomplished films that... I think anyone can get something out of these movies. I had really positive viewing experiences for all of these. And hopefully we'll be talking about all three, I think, throughout the season. Yeah, so I guess let's just jump right into Bones and All. Description here. In a startling, star-making performance, Taylor Russell plays Marin, a teenager who has just moved to a small town in Virginia with her father. However, it's only a matter of time before the frightening secret Marin harbors is revealed and she must hit the road again on her own. Soon, she meets another young drifter, Lee, who understands her more than anyone she's ever met, and the two set out on a cross-country journey, satiating their dangerous desires and reckoning with their tragic pasts. It's directed by Luca Guadagnino and stars Taylor Russell, Timothy Chalamet, Michael Stolberg, Mark Rylance, Chloe Sevigny, and more. This one is special because right out of the gate, it won Best Director for Luca Guadagnino and Young Actor for Taylor Russell at the Venice Film Festival. So that was really exciting as that like first review of this movie that we were both waiting for. And then also at the Gotham Noms that we kind of mentioned last week, Russell was nominated for Outstanding Lead Performance and Rylance was nominated in Supporting Performance. I think that's interesting leaving out Timmy, but it also makes sense. Luca just continues to fascinate me with what he chooses to show on screen. I think it's beautifully heartfelt and emotional and personal, but also kind of dangerous as an idea of a film or a way to showcase this fable as his growing up story. But I do think that people can still connect to this love story and this coming-of-age tale in their own way. What did you think of Bones and All? Yeah, it was one of my most anticipated movies of the year. I love Luca Guadagnino. I feel like he makes films that really are for all five senses. It is a full-body experience watching his films every time. I mean, from Call Me By Your Name to I Am Love to A Bigger Splash. I mean, he really is just one of those filmmakers who I feel just very fulfilled by when I watch his movies. They're definitely beautiful visually always, but even more than that, I feel like there's something deeper there. There's something really emotional that I love about his films. And this one was no different. When I watched the first clip that came out of this movie, I remember thinking, oh, I'm getting sort of a Badlands feel from this clip. And I think... 
that that comparison did hold up for me. I love that it was this love story, not just about cannibals, but about young people trying to find themselves and to find their place in the world as outcasts who are just meandering from location to location who don't exactly, you know, have a place that they can call home besides with each other. And I I thought that that was very beautiful. I think it is the most romantic movie of the year for me, even though it's incredibly violent and visceral. And you, you do have to, I think, go into it expecting that in a movie about cannibals. But it's very sensitive and empathetic and I I really loved it and you know you talking about the awards that it's gotten so far I think those are great you know Luca for director and Taylor Russell is phenomenal but Timothy Chalamet actually gave my favorite performance in the movie like fully got the Timothy wave that the craze (laughs) around Timothy Chalamet after seeing this I was like oh he's he is it I get it yeah I love the scene with him when he's dancing that like fully Mm -hmm. got me In some of those early reviews, they kind of talked about Taylor Russell giving what Timmy gave during Call Me By Your Name. I felt that hugely when I was watching this with her. In the trailer, you do see that finger sleepover scene, which comes very early in the movie, so it's not a spoiler. But from there, I mean, not only do you feel that violence that Luca can give us, but also the sensitivity that comes in the next moment when she has to decide what to do and how she's going to take charge of her life when she has nobody else to lean on. And she's still this young, growing person. And I feel like that's incredibly scary. So to see her set off on this journey, meeting Sully, who is this quirky (laughs) Mark Rylance character. I mean, I was like cringing at his teeth and his mannerisms and feeling so scared for her in that moment and the trepidation that she has in following him and trusting someone that is apparently of her same identity. And then later on, she meets Lee, who is Timmy, in this moment where he's trying to protect her. So I think juxtaposing these two male characters from one another is interesting but then again, from there, we, we are forming friendships. We are trying to understand who we are. So ultimately, it's a film about loneliness. And I think sitting in this space where you're given so many static frames of nature, you kind of start to see the beauty where maybe you weren't looking before. And I think that's what Luca wants you to do as a viewer as well with Lee and Marin. You kind of go through so many emotional struggles just watching this movie and I think how it ends it just captures everything so beautifully again another movie like with Banshees you kind of just sit there and want to think about it and embrace that moment yeah a great final shot I also think with Taylor Russell she actually has really similar qualities to like Shelley Duvall or Sissy Spacek these actresses from the 70s who would have been in Altman or Malick movies who are holding something back. Like they're trying to discover something about themselves or about their world and they have this wide-eyed innocence, but they're also able to show that there's something darker underneath that at the same time. And I feel like that's a really hard 
skill for an actress to achieve. And it's pretty rare, honestly, today that actresses are able to do that because the roles, I feel like, and the films don't let them do that in the same way that they did back then. Mm-hmm. So I, I really love that. And I feel like the beginning of the film, you know, at that scene you were talking about when she's at the sleepover, it is such a visceral, jarring way to start the film pretty much mm-hmm. with her engaging in cannibalism, right? Like you, you've heard it's a cannibal movie and then you start to, you see it right away. But she just seems like this new girl at a school who's trying to find friends and then this happens. So I think there is a lot of care that is put into the character and into the story. And I do think that for viewers, you know, a lot of people have asked me who aren't into horror movies, but who might be into Timothy Chalamet or who might want to try this movie if they will be squeamish. I think the hardest parts of the movie really are in the beginning of the film. So that scene that you mentioned and that I just mentioned and the scene when she meets Mark Rylance and we do see them eat someone. That's a lot. And I think part of it is because of the sound work, which is pretty brilliant in the movie, like hearing the bones and the flesh and everything. It's, it's gross. I think the most disgusting part of the movie, if I'm being honest with myself and our listeners is this object that Sully, the Mark Rylance character carries around with him. Which is a a long braid made of the hair of all of the people that he's eaten in his time as a cannibal. I thought that was horrific and disgusting, but that was the worst part. That was worse for me than all the blood and everything else that happens with the actual eating of people. The braid was horrifying. The opening scene, too, is also kind of a jump scare. Because I wasn't really expecting that to happen. But yeah, you hear that crunch and that just kind of sent me. Yeah. There isn't a ton of blood. There is more blood later on. But yeah, for me, that wasn't as much of an issue. He also makes the blood look very beautiful. Like there's one of my favorite shots in the movie is a low angle shot of Timothy, of Lee after he's eaten. And it's in the dark. And he has blood like all over his face and his chest. And he just looks up and he has that beautiful angular face. And he he really does look like someone from like a fable or a fairy tale, um, like another world altogether. So I feel like Luca has a really good, he had a really good understanding of like the tone that he wanted to convey throughout this as, you know, feeling grounded in our world. Yes, but also having this horror fantasy like quality to it i really enjoyed that and in that moment too i think luca's lighting is really beautiful Mm. too because for part of this movie we're on the road it's a road movie i mean he navigates between genres so easily it's horror it's romance it's drama it's this road movie and you know it's at night and you see these car lights in front just flashing by and you can see the blood like smeared on his chin and on his face. Mm-hmm. And the way Timmy just works with that too is very Timmy. And I love that. I will say though, I'm also really excited for Luca's next film, Challengers, because I could see Mike Feist, who was one of our favorites last year from West Side Story. I could see him in a role like this, actually. I feel like he has the right look for it. I was going to say, I think Timmy's look 
is like even more emaciated here and i think that plays really well yeah i mean i was shocked by how knobby his little knees were in those jeans because the jeans that he wears have those big cutouts (laughs) (laughs) i was like oh my god he's so thin yeah and i think as a road movie it is interesting how we go from virginia maryland ohio all over the midwest really and this film was shot in ohio as ohioans we do have to say that in Chillicothe in Cincinnati. But one thing I wished they had more of was just like, I wish they were in certain places for a little bit longer where we could feel the connection to the place a little bit more and like the people who lived there because some of the strongest scenes in the movie for me were actually when they would have an interaction with a person who was there, whether it was someone they were eating or a relative they connected with. I thought that those those scenes worked really well as opposed to the scenes when they would just sort of stop and be talking about like their experiences as eaters or like forming these connections in particular the scene at the carnival I thought that those were really strong um, and were probably the best points of the movie for me that was funny because at the New York Film Festival somebody asked why on screen he didn't show as much violence with Lee as he did with Marin and Luca goes like, what do you mean? He makes the guy come and then he eats him. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> yeah, he did that. <laughs> the reason why I also liked that scene too, was I was like, oh, this is this is just textbook Luca. Like we, we really did have to go here mm-hmm. at some point in the movie for it to feel like a true Guadagnino film. I mean, that's what it boils down to is that that's what he's trying to show us. There's this homoeroticism to a lot of the shots or the relationships even in that opening when they're at the sleepover and I think you know having this Mm -hmm. as being about cannibals is about that too even though that's not literally what he is making that connection of well and like the connection though is somewhat made through the screenplay there's a scene when Marin asks Lee what his first time was like and she's referencing eating a human Right. But that phrase can obviously in the common lexicon, it's sexual, not related to cannibalism and the way that he describes the feeling. And when she says, what was it like afterwards? The way that he sort of intertwines sex and cannibalism for these characters, I thought was really interesting and definitely goes to what you're talking about, about this sensuality and homoeroticism that is laced throughout the movie. So how do you feel about Oscar potential or maybe other awards potential for this movie? I'm curious to see how it does with critics groups because I think that Taylor Russell definitely has a good chance of getting some of those like young actor or breakthrough actor prizes. She was in waves, but I feel like this is a really big role for her and she's fabulous in the movie. But I feel I feel like this is mostly going to be a critics play. Unfortunately, as much as I would love for it to hit with the industry, I think there are a couple of categories where it might be possible and we can get to those. But I think for the most part, this is going to be a critic's pick. I do think, though, if we're going to push it in any categories, I would want to see cinematography because the cinematography in this movie is beautiful. Mm -hmm. The cinematographer, the DP's name is Arsene Kachaterin. And it's stunning. 
stunning work. Like every single shot could be framed and it definitely contributes to this, this beautiful eighties romantic setting that feels connected to the setting in a really beautiful way. So I feel like cinematography and then the other one would be adapted screenplay. What about you? I also love the cinematography. Looking at Gold Derby, it's like so far down the list with like one to a hundred odds. It's embarrassing that I have it listed, but it is just one of the most remarkable films to watch Mm -hmm. because of these static shots or these slow zoom shots and Mm -hmm. just the way he captures like you said badlands this malikian essence to their lives and i guess call me by your name is a little bit like that we don't get that as much in suspiria but it just works so well in blending these worlds here and the cinematographer arseni was under 30 when he made this (laughs) so (laughs) when lucas said this on stage i was like oh okay (laughs) great oh god like what are we doing masterpiece exactly i think adapted screenplay is more likely acting i don't see anything unless like mark rylance would show up because the academy loves him like Mm -hmm. never say never but it's probably more unlikely even still anything else it's not showy for sound so like that's not gonna happen it's kind of sad the way like it's veering away from that world of you know the academy and the oscars but i do think venice wise that will relate more with critics i think taylor could even win some along the way but i don't think timmy will show up we didn't even mention michael Stahlberg. i mean he's in less of the film but you know that was a jump scare when i realized (laughs) that it was him (laughs) oh my god luca loves his actors and collaborating Mm -hmm. with them so (laughs) it was fun to see him though yeah i think it really is just I worry that it's too much of a genre blend with horror elements in there to like really stick with the Academy. I also feel like because the beginning is so tough, like the beginning really is for me, like the hardest part to watch, like to get used to the type of violence that you'll see and the way that the violence feels. I worry about walkouts or Academy Mm. members just turning off their screeners, but my recommendation is to stick with it. And I really do actually think and hope that the Adapted Screenplay nomination happens because that category is very thin this year. And some of the titles people are throwing around, I think, for that. I'm like, do we have to do that? Are you sure? I don't know about that. Like, let's put Bones and All in there instead. And then we do have Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor on the score, which I think is great. They're also on Empire of Light. I don't know necessarily... You know, if they were to get one nomination, would it be for score? Probably not. But they are big names, so I'm not going to leave it out entirely. But I feel like from early reviews, they might get in for Empire of Light over this, if it were to be Mm -hmm. one of them. Yeah, score is such a tough category this year. It really is just loaded. And even though I think their favorites in the category have gotten the double nom before, I would probably lean Empire of Light for them as well. This movie also has a great soundtrack. I would be remiss if I didn't say that at least once during this review. There's a New Order song, Joy Division, the Lick It Up Kiss needle drop is so good. So highly recommend the playlist on Spotify of the Bones and All Mm -hmm. soundtrack. (laughs) So if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I would give it Best Cinematography. 
for all of the reasons I outlined before, I love the look of this movie. It's very, very evocative of those Terrence Malick, Vim Vendors movies. Yes, but it also feels like it's creating this new, almost young adult horror fable. I thought it was really beautiful. I would do the same exact thing. Like nothing else to say except that I want to go see it again. So it will be out in theaters this weekend as this episode is released. So definitely try to see it if it's in your area. Okay, next we have The Fablemans. This is Steven Spielberg's latest film, of course. Description here, growing up in post-World War II era Arizona, a young man named Sammy Fableman discovers a shattering family secret and explores how the power of films can help him see the truth. It stars Michelle Williams, Gabriel LaBelle, Paul Dano, Judd Hirsch, and Seth Rogen. This won the People's Choice Award at TIFF, and I think was sort of dubbed as the early Best Picture frontrunner, Oscar frontrunner, even before that happened. It was sort of preordained. But Universal had a really interesting release strategy where it kind of went quiet. It didn't do the big festival run. Like, I think people were expecting, like, The Power of the Dog did last year where it just played everywhere, right? It was Spielberg's first trip to Toronto. It won the People's Choice Award, and then we just didn't really hear about it for a while, which I think was really wise. And then it was the closing night film at the AFI Festival in LA, and now it's in theaters. And I love this movie so much. I can't be cynical about it. It just, it's it's the way that it is for me, but... What did you think about The Fablemans? In planning for this episode, I was reminded of our review of the TIFF Festival of talking about what happened that it was either you or Bennett were like, yeah, it won, but like, was it because it was Spielberg's first time there? And now I'm like, well, no, it won because it should have won. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it's just that good. Yeah. I think it's going to play so well with audiences. It's wide for Thanksgiving. Which, like I said at the end of the last episode, I think it's a great movie to see with your family. Yes, it is dramatic and very personal and intense at times. But I think the way that Spielberg talks about this story, he does it in such a grand way, a beautiful way. And it's like such an ode to his mother. It's just like a big hug also for movies. You know, you want to stay away from like love letter to cinema. But (laughs) I think he does it in such a Spielberg way that I think it's very much okay. You know, people, as they want to do, they'll throw around the phrase love letter to cinema, whether it's Damien Chazelle's Babylon, which has just screened for critics, to Belfast last year. It is just a term that gets thrown around when we're talking about Filmmakers who make a project that is either autobiographical or that involves cinema history. And in this case, it's so much more than that because I think it actually shows the power of cinema for better or for worse. And I think we can go through some scenes and how that's different maybe in in how that plays out for Sammy. But it, it shows that filmmaking is not just a talent, but a calling and something that he had to do in no matter what, even if it destroyed his life. So while yes, it can be a film about the importance of cinema, and it is, it's also a very personal story about the power that something, any kind of profession really, but art or science 
how that can affect your life and your future and your current relationships. Every year, I hope to just like get that feeling that I get so rarely where it's like the the Addison DeWitt quote in All About Eve, (laughs) where like you just dream and hope for those moments where you understand why people love things and why you love what you love. And for me, it's, it's movies. And in this one, like from pretty early on, I realized it was happening and that I know I can get like romantic and cringy about this <laughs> and how I feel about movies, but I really did feel like I was like floating out of my seat and my heart was removed from my body and there was nothing else I could do to control it. It just, I had surrendered to the Fablemans and that was it. And that wasn't, an, that was not a feeling I expected to have with this movie throughout this year. I, you remember at the beginning of the season, I was like, "Ugh, we're doing this again. <laughs> like we can't do this again. I want something different, but no, this, it happened and it was different. I think it's very different from these other autobiographical films. Yeah. And Spielberg said this was the first coming of age story he ever told which is crazy to think about because we talked about E.T. earlier this year, and that is also personal and, you know, kind of a coming of age for that child. But I think this is so telling because it means that this was a part of him. Like, he is telling his own story, and I think Gabrielle LaBelle just does an amazing job as a child actor. He's great. Yeah. Yeah. I loved him. From those early reviews, you heard about how good he was. And I was like, I wasn't sure I fully believed that or that it like it could be possible for this teen to do so well in a Spielberg movie. And I was like, how much of the movie is he really going to be in? Mm-hmm. Are they going to change out actors because it was, you know, him from age seven to 18. But again, always trust Spielberg. <laughs> that he knows yeah. what he's doing. Like he has been doing this since he was a child, as we see on screen. And those Super 8 films that he's making, he recreated with the cinematographer, Kaminsky, to look like the films that he made as a kid. Like they're basically recreations or, you know, glorified recreations of his own hand. I think that's amazing. The first 30 minutes are just so magical. We get incredible shots. Tears streaming down my face. Yeah. Like I was so (laughs) breathless. I started to tear up. My favorite shot, I think maybe of this whole year, is when he's watching a movie that he made and he puts his palms up and it's the movie frame is literally in his hands. (laughs) I was like, the light bulb just goes off and... Like you can't not help but cry realizing that this is his passion and this is what he wants to do. I'm going to start crying now talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think what with that, it's, it's so important and it's a theme that goes through the film and that comes up later, but it's what happens to you when you find your power that young, right? And you understand like, ooh, this is what I can do, right? I can make this happen and I can hold you and your emotions in the palm of my hand, right? Like he realizes that as a small child, which is very astute. And I think it takes, you know, it takes some time, of course, for him to realize what that means. It comes up in a brilliant scene, I think near the end of the film too, which features some of his greatest blocking I've ever seen. And he's like the king of blocking, right? But yeah, I mean, the opening of this movie, how it opens, we see him going to the movies in 1952 to see The Greatest Show on Earth. And 
he doesn't know what this experience is going to be like. And we learn what both of his parents are like. We learn that his mom, Mitzi, is this artist and she describes films as dreams that stay with you. And we know that Bert, his dad, is a scientist and he describes to try to sort of quell his anxieties, like what happens behind the camera, right? Like the science of filmmaking. And this is so important because he has always been a filmmaker who understands that filmmaking and film is the combination of art and science. He's a technician, but he's also a master of emotion. And he carries that through his films. And that line when Michelle Williams, as his mom says, mommy and daddy will be with you the entire time. That isn't just when he's a kid. That is through his entire history as a filmmaker, right? Like his, their divorce has been so mythologized and depicted on screen. Um, Whether he says, you know, it has or it hasn't. I think that's part of the myth of Spielberg, but they are with him the whole time and they're with him now as he's making this film about his childhood and his relationship with his parents and yeah I I thought I think that's so beautiful we get another depiction of trains inspiring this passion as well and it was interesting because the sequence is beautiful it comes very late in the actual movie the greatest show on earth which I watched this week and was not as moved by especially for a best picture winner it's like this two and a half hour movie which i think for a child his age could be really magical and being the first movie he saw in a theater but yeah alas not one of my favorite best picture winners but i'm glad we get the spielberg that we do because of it i love how right he gets a train car every night of hanukkah so that he can recreate this train crash that he's been so obsessed with and keeps thinking about and That's when we also get the observation from Mitzi, his mom, that he wants to gain control over the trains crashing. So she gives him the camera, which there is just something so beautiful that almost just that almost makes you want to cry when you realize that you're seeing Spielberg's mom give him a camera. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, my God, look what you've done. (laughs) Like you've given, you know, this great gift to the world. I'm being like very sentimental about this. I know, but it's fine. No, I very much connect with that too. And when I saw these things happening, you know, you can relate to it so well. I think that's his power too, is creating images and scenarios that everyone has experienced probably more than you think have. And I just like held my heart because I was like, oh my God, (laughs) he gets me. (laughs) Yeah. And it, it does have, because I think this movie is really, it's sort of incident driven rather than plot driven. We should say that it does sort of meander a bit right we do time jump we go from location to location to location we start in new jersey then we go to arizona then we go to california because this family moves around a lot and it's hard to i think describe the plot of this film which is a bonus to me i love movies like that but it feels i think why it feels so strong here and why it's actually really advantageous to the narrative is that it feels like You know, when you're, I don't know, this is, I'm not old enough to actually know this, but I I have the feeling that like when you get to a certain age, I don't know, you might have like 10, anywhere from 10 to 20 stories that you feel like defined your life or that you can tell on command that you feel like, you know, made you the person that you are. And I feel like that's, that's what he's doing here through his filmmaking. He's focusing on a particular period of time in his life, but he is thinking very specifically about 
you know, what are the stories that made me not just the filmmaker that I am today, but the person and like, how do those all come together? And I think what I also really like is that I feel like he understands that there comes a time in a person's life when you realize that your parents are real adults. Like you realize that your parents are adult humans who make mistakes, who aren't these wondrous mythical fairy tale beings. They're actual real people. And I feel like this film really understands that. What starts out as a binary of Mitzi, his mother loving art and dreams and fostering that in him and his father being, you know, into the more like technical elements of life and of science and being more realistic and being a really nice guy, but being almost so nice that he's suffocating to his wife. Like you, you start to see that become more complex as he gets older and that, and as he gets behind the camera more often. And I, I thought that was really, really brilliant. You talk about the way he uses these experiences to develop his feeling and understanding about his parents. And I think it was really interesting in an interview. He said basically this is that my life with my mom and dad taught me a lesson, which I hope this film in a small way imparts, which is when does a young person in a family start to see his parents as human beings? And in my case, I started to appreciate my mom and dad, not as parents, but as real people during this time period. And that is probably easy, you know, making this movie as he's so much older looking back. But it's also a really mature way to look at your adolescence of your coming of age, because when you're in those years, I don't think you see those experiences as those things either. It's chilling, but also beautiful to look at, you know, putting these moments of his life together and saying, you know, this is how I realized my parents are also other humans in my life and that they have other lives too. And, you know, it's heartbreaking, but it's heartwarming. At the same time, there's this dynamic to the relationships that he shows us that really do make you think in really different ways. Yeah, I think the other example that I think of of a film that does that the best is Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird, which we both love, where I feel like Greta Gerwig was really, she was thinking about that, about adolescence and about how narcissistic they can be and immature. Like they're only focused in that moment on their own growth and in whatever is coming next for them. And they're not realizing that at the same time this is happening, their parents are also growing older too. And they're experiencing like changes in their adult life. And you don't realize that until you're an adult and you can reflect back on that and I feel like he does that really really well here too who had your favorite performance in the movie I think easily Michelle Williams but that is also how like I could see parts of my own mom in her as well and like the quotes and you know the opening I love how when we see him as a kid outside the movie theater we don't see Michelle or Paul's face yet but we hear them talking to him and then we eventually do, but it gives you this like dreamlike quality to who your parents are and remembering what they've said to you. So I think I put some of that into these characters as well. So I loved her delicacy, but also in being able to see the real her, but then also seeing her break down and cry and then in another moment, see her be free and she does this like interpretive dance So I think her casting was perfect. She's dynamic. 
it's really not anything I've seen her like before. And I love that. Who is your favorite? My favorite was actually Paul Dano to the opposite opposite <laughs> end. But I feel like with Michelle Williams for a second, like this is a big, big performance. And I think that people have been sort of critical of that, of just how big it is and how it can feel over the top. But for that, I just sort of feel like this is also like how you might remember your mom. Like when you think about your mom and how you felt about your mom when you were a child, like your mom is bigger and wilder and more fun and eccentric. Like when you think back on your childhood in particular, and she is this character, this artistic spirit who also, you know, struggles with her own mental health challenges. And I feel like the way that Spielberg depicted that was very loving and understanding of her. And I feel like this film also doesn't take sides. I didn't interpret it that way as him choosing a parent of which parent was better or had a specific effect on the divorce. I think he's very even about it. Mm -hmm. And I think we can get into some spoilers here. But, you know, when he realizes through filming the camping trip and making this film of the camping trip in, I think, what's one of the most heartbreaking but beautiful scenes in the movie as he's cutting this footage together and he realizes that there's something going on between his mom and Uncle Benny, played by Seth Rogen. It's it's one of those things where it's definitely one of those like emotional affairs that's going on. And he sees that and he's the first one to realize that and to realize how dangerous film can be and filming something and how it can show a truth that you might not have expected. I also think that the movie is fair in showing that Bert, Paul Dano's character, who I think is very measured and low-key in this film and his performance, but he has like really powerful moments that made me understand this character, Bert. You know, he's he's the type of guy who can't sit still. Like he's completely motivated by work. He overcompensates by giving things to his family and telling th- them that things are going to be okay in this new space and that he's, you know, moving forward and advancing technology. And you know that he's a really intelligent guy, but he also is selfish. So it's something where I think that both parents have their faults and both parents are displayed as being, you know, loving and influential, but also having their reasons why their marriage didn't work out. And I think they're both, it's fairly depicted. What I liked about Paul Dano here is that, and this is also credit to Spielberg and Kushner with the writing, is that he never felt like cartoonish in his objections to filmmaking. Like he's supportive, but he's also dismissive. And this sort of shows, I think, why the marriage didn't work between him and Mitzi, a really artistic type who, you know, she's an idealist. She loves her dreams, yes, and her piano playing and that, the potential of what her future could have had. But he, he's the type of dad or the type of guy who's like, oh, that's great, but, you know, you should, you're going to get a real job one day. That's a hobby. Like, you can't study this in college. So I think you you understand that type of parent really well and especially at that time but you also yeah it's it's very nuanced and yeah he wasn't like you're not able to do this because this is bad which I think a lesser lesser screenwriter would have done and a lesser actor would have done with the character 
yeah, I think it could have been easy to play it very good versus evil, but he does that also like within each character and in what they have to face themselves. So I think that was really smart. I agree with you there. Spielberg wanted to make this movie for so long. Like he's been thinking about this for over 20 years. Mm -hmm. And at one point his sister had written a screenplay for him. So I think it's interesting that one, not only his family also contributed to this, but two, that his parents had nagged him for so long in wanting a movie about their life and their family. So I don't know, I would have an incredible amount of nerves making a movie about my parents, let alone this movie that is so personal to them too. And I do think it is a loving tribute to both of his parents, but it is, I mean, it's, it's a lot. It's, it's, in, it's really thinking about every single person in this movie as a real complex human. And that's, you know, that's, that's hard on people to watch. And the other really strong component to this movie was, you know, we're talking about the family, but growing up Jewish in non-Jewish communities was an important and really eye-opening experience for him too. You know, once he gets to high school and he's bullied so much for that, he ends up yelling at his dad because, you know, they move so often and now they're in a town where there's nobody he can relate to. He doesn't have friends and he's getting mocked at school for having a Jewish last name. And I think the way that Spielberg does this, you know, he doesn't really showcase this in a lot of his movies. But again, it's another component that I think you look at in a really new way because of how he shows his family and the dinner table and, you know, his aunts and uncles. And then once he finally tells the bully off and he screams at him, you know, it's a really warm way and I think an uplifting way to talk about something that, you know, in today's world is still an issue. And it's it's horrifying to think about and to see how proud he is of his heritage is also really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he talks about how he didn't experience anti-Semitism until he moved to California and how horrible this experience was for him. And I think what he does with these scenes, with, with these anti-Semitic bullies at school, I think is just some of his best filmmaking, honestly, because when we have this, when we have this beach party movie that he plays for his class, I think that is some of the best work from Spielberg, especially recently, because again, like I mentioned, he's just the master of blocking and we have a very, very cool sequence with a oneer, which he loves doing in his movies and everyone tries, but they can't, can't quite do it like he can, where Again, he has that realization several times throughout the movie of filmmaking is powerful, right? Like he's holding the image of the train in his hands. He films something that leads to a realization that leads to his parents' divorce. He is told by Judd Hirsch in what is an incredible cameo slash supporting performance that this is something that he has to to do right like it's something that like it doesn't matter if you don't want to do this too bad this is who you are you have to do this even if it destroys you and like he visualizes himself in that house filming this confrontation but it all builds up to this moment where we see sammy learn the power of film and what it can do when you choose to depict a character 
in a certain way, right? He makes this tall blonde guy look like a hero and he gets under his skin in a really, really real way. And it shows, I think it, it just demonstrates his realization of the importance of filmmaking, but also the power that he holds with the camera and how that's going to be something that he has to reckon with um, throughout the rest of his life. So I was a really big fan of that scene. I thought it was great. Also with his war film that he makes, he talks about how he actually cast the bully that was bullying him in school because he wanted to stand up to his own fears. And I was like, I would never do that. Like make somebody the main character in a movie and they hate you but like props to him i think i mean that alone... it's also a little petty which is great <laughs> <laughs> i mean i think it shows what type of character he has as a person and whether that's mm-hmm. you know a little romanticized or not is another question but i think it boils down to you know him wanting to make good movies and if it looks like mm-hmm. the right person for the job then he did what he had to do I think he definitely did. I do want to talk about the final shot like very quickly, Mm -hmm. the final, final moment, because this does feature my favorite cameo of the year, maybe in the last couple of years. When I realized that it was David Lynch playing John Ford, I was like, oh my God, this is the coolest thing ever, because not only do I love David Lynch and just seeing that's the scene of... Sammy meeting one of his heroes after he thought, I'm never going to make it here. Like he was so down and out. Just hearing that conversation was important and it was a great movie moment, but it also was cool because if you think about Spielberg in the eighties, he and Lynch were contemporaries, but they were sort of foils for each other. And a lot of people who thought that Spielberg was a sellout and who was making all these blockbusters, like Lynch was their answer. Lynch was the cool art house guy making risky films that were much more ambitious and you know he wasn't making blockbusters and changing cinema in that way he was changing cinema in a way that was more respectable I think to a certain type of crowd so the fact that he put him in here as John Ford right it not only shows like yes they're friends and everything in real life so it makes sense there but it shows how important filmmakers are throughout time and how like even if your styles are different and the perception of you is different like your their impact on cinema is so great and they've changed the lives of so many up-and-coming filmmakers right Mm -hmm. like john ford did that for sammy and for spielberg like think of who spielberg and lynch have done that for we might not have even seen their movies yet i wonder if this is what john ford was actually like too according to spielberg it's pretty close (laughs) It's a word for word interaction. But again, like the name Fableman, right? It's mythologizing mm. things. Like we'll never know, right? He's he's printing the legend. Yeah, it's it's cool. It's fun to think about. So we have more Oscar potential to talk about here. Definitely yeah. a lot more. <laughs> to start, this is the first collaboration between him and Tony Kushner. Kushner wrote Munich, Lincoln, and West Side Story for Spielberg, but they wrote this together. I think that's one place that this will definitely show up. I think the obvious one is also Best Picture, but how do you feel about everything else, about its chances, even in those categories, if it could win? Yeah, I think so. To start, just looking at the the below-the-line categories, this movie is, I think, one of the ones that has the potential to be a double-digit nomination earner. First, it's a movie that editors will watch and will be obsessed with. 
because this movie shows the craft of editing, right? He is cutting film. He's, we see Sammy edit all of these films and cut them together. So not only is the film extremely well edited, it's about editing in a sense. So I think it can get into editing and then um, therefore we can maybe expect that sound nomination to come along with it. I think the costumes are great. Also done by Mark Bridges, previous winner for Phantom Thread and someone who does come up in the category quite a bit. He was nominated for Joker and those costumes were fine. (laughs) I think score, John Williams, the legendary John Williams, he's 91 years old. This is one of his final scores. So I think that he'll get in and he got in for Star Wars <laughs> like recently. This is again a competitive year for score, but I can I can see that happening. Janusz Kaminski for cinematography, another favorite in the category. And then acting, I want to know what you think of this, but there was a bunch of hubbub about Michelle Williams being switched from supporting to lead. I personally don't have a problem with her being in lead. I feel like this is a performance that could theoretically go in both, but I don't think it's egregious that it's in lead or like feels like an overwhelming supporting performance. This character clearly had a big influence on him and is the heart of the story, honestly. So I think she'll get in. I think she'll get in just fine. I think that was now having seen the movie mostly from people that hadn't seen the movie yet and they were just shocked Mm -hmm. to hear that. But like, as I saw it, I was like, yes, this makes sense. I could see it Mm -hmm. going either way. And, you know, I kind of would love her to stay in supporting. So she had such a better chance of winning. It's not one where it's like fraud if it's either way. The main character is Sammy. And it's just hard to say, like, the movie is Mm -hmm. probably at least a third to a half about her. So she may not win since she's in lead, but I think she will get nominated. My only worry with editing is that Michael Kahn wasn't nominated last year for West Side Story. Mm-hmm. I think the narrative behind this film will help its chances versus being a remake of a previous winner, a previous Best Picture winner. But I think it still can show up there. I really would love a sound nomination as well. Picture director. I don't necessarily see Gabrielle getting in for Best Actor. Because we do have quite a few, even though there is, I feel like, an open spot, maybe two. We have a lot of older actors who I feel like it's their time to get nominated, potentially. And someone who's just performed in his first movie, like, I don't think he's going to be the first choice among them. But I think cinematography is, like, such an easy choice here as well. Again, I feel like a lot of these that we're mentioning, they could win in, too. Like, they're not Mm -hmm. just nominees. They are potential wins. And I think that's big because I don't think we've talked about that, at least in multiple categories, this year so far. No, we really haven't. It's something where this movie was called The Front Runner, I think, for a reason. Like, you can just sort of see it happening. And I'm not sure I think of what the other movie is that would challenge it. We can maybe talk about that with picture a little bit. But with supporting actor... I think there's a real possibility that Paul Dano and Judd Hirsch could get in. Even though Judd Hirsch isn't in much of the movie, he is a scene stealer. And for people who are artists, I mean, he delivers a really potent, powerful message. 
He is the person who a lot of people in the art world, a lot of people in the film industry can remember because everyone, every creative person has a person in their life, in their past who told them, you have to do this. Don't listen to the real, the so-called realists. Don't listen to everyone else. Like this is your calling. This is something you have to do. And I think they'll think about this character fondly, right? Because of that message. And also he's an eccentric, like he's a circus performer who is also a previous nominee. I feel like it can definitely happen. I hope that Paul Dano gets in. I think he's great. And yeah, so I feel like there's there's potential there. With screenplay, I also think, yes, it can get in. Director, I mean, for me, Spielberg is the front runner to win. It just feels like the type of movie that the Academy would want to reward. And it is a directorial achievement. Like It's not just someone telling their personal story. This is not Belfast. It's not. I'm sorry. Like it, it's just not. And it really is. I think it, it's a great achievement in filmmaking. And it's one that if this were Spielberg's last movie, I would be like, okay, I get it. Go out with a bang. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think earlier in the season it was, oh, Sarah Polly's got this in the bag. I think we have to wait and see how that rollout will be once that's released. I think it's still possible. But like as of right now, he's definitely in the lead. Well, I think with women talking, because Sarah Polly got the silver medallion at Telluride, I do think that The Fablemans, the biggest challenger is women talking, because it's another film that I can see it's very timely. It's done really well with critics. It hasn't won anything technically yet, like any picture prizes, but it did place at Toronto. Mm -hmm. So people do like it. It is something that it's not this like austere movie that is inaccessible. It's just, it's whether or not they think it's time to give Spielberg another or it's time to crown a different type of directorial achievement. I think what Sarah Polly does with Women Talking is is pretty beautiful too. But it could be interesting if we don't have a sweep because I think the past few years we've had sweeps in the director category where we know going into the night, mm-hmm. oh, it's Jane Campion, oh, it's Chloe Zhao. Maybe we won't this year. So if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I think this is definitely a case that I would give it Best Picture very rare, but I would give it to Best Director. I'd give it to Spielberg. It was really beautiful to see a different side of filmmaking that he really hasn't given us before. And I think what he does with the performances and and bringing up these really personal moments with filmmaking really young and the way everything is brought about, like the way he talks about these experiences and the people in his lives it really made me think about my own life and how I could relate. And that doesn't really happen a lot on screen. So I really think he deserves it here. What would you give it? We're aligned again. (laughs) I would say director for Spielberg. I really, I really do love this movie. And I think that what he does here with the camera, but also just looking into his own life and putting that on screen in such a sad, beautiful, nostalgic way. Just, it was it was really special to me. Not to get sentimental again, but it was. I'm excited to see this movie again and to like take my family to go see it. I think it's, it's something that people will really enjoy watching multiple times. I agree. I really want to go again. <laughs> okay, and our last movie we'll be talking about, She Said... Description here, New York Times reporters Megan Toohey and Jody Cantor break one of the most important stories in a generation, a story that helped launch the Me Too movement and shattered decades of silence around the subject of sexual assault in Hollywood. This one's directed by Maria Schrader, 
and stars Kerry Mulligan, Zoe Kazan, Patricia Clarkson, Jennifer Ely, and more. So this was my last movie at the New York Film Festival, and what a movie. I mean, I ended, I was sobbing, there was a standing ovation, we were clapping, not only for the filmmakers and the final lines that roll on screen, but once the Q&A happened, Ashley Judd came out, who was a part of this whole story, and multiple other survivors that were in the audience invited by Maria Schrader. So it was just not only a chilling experience, but an uplifting one too, just hearing our stories and how everybody worked together and seeing Jody and Megan, the real ones on stage, along with their acting counterparts, Carrie and Zoe. So it was kind of an exhausting experience, like in a good way. In the movie, you learn a lot. It is very intensive. And even if you know the story, I felt like there were lots of details that they also discussed and uncovered that weren't necessarily talked about in the news frequently. So it's a hard movie and like a hard topic to discuss, yes, but I think it's an important one too. We can talk about the rollout and everything, but what did you think of She Said? So when She Said was announced, I was really worried about this because I sort of thought, you know, is this too soon to make a movie about Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement? You know, it, it wasn't that long ago that this story broke. And, you know, will it be this self-congratulatory Hollywood story where they're given the opportunity to pat themselves on the back and Harvey Weinstein is this, like, ogre-like boogeyman figure who they'll depict on screen, sort of like Roger Ailes in Bombshell, which is a movie I really didn't like. I was sort of worried that we might get something like that. And... Also, I should say that I love investigative journalism movies. I loved Spotlight. I love All the President's Men. That's one of my favorite movies of all time. And I was pleasantly surprised with how much I enjoyed this movie and how I feel like it was the best movie possible for this topic and the subject matter. I feel like they did a really good job of not propping up Harvey Weinstein and showing him on screen and hearing from him on screen too much. Instead, we got to learn about these two women, Megan Tui and Jodi Cantor, and not just how they broke the story and how they worked with many of the survivors from the days in the 90s at Miramax and from Harvey Weinstein's despicable behavior, but we learned about them as like working mothers outside of their roles as journalists at the New York Times. I felt like that was an area that, you know, wasn't depicted in the book that I felt was a really good addition to the movie. And it also added a layer to me when I was thinking about it, because when I think when people talk about survivors of sexual assault or people who experience these horrific situations, they're totally defined by that experience, especially on film and in novels, on TV shows. It has really become that way. And we don't actually learn about these women in their real lives and why when something like this happens, not only is it traumatic because of the experience itself, but you still have these other responsibilities and other people who are pulling you in different directions and your career and so many things that you have to still navigate as a woman in the world that don't get put on pause because you were assaulted by a horrible person. And, you know, the additional burden that 
Harvey Weinstein's victims had to carry through this. And I feel like the movie did a really good job of centering these women's stories and not making it this story about Harvey Weinstein. I really felt like he wasn't the subject of the movie. Instead, it was the women and the courageous survivors instead. Yeah, I guess going into it, I was expecting Spotlight or a version of that. And that is part of the movie, but I love the female perspective that we get. That really did surprise me. Like when we hear that Megan is going through postpartum depression and she talks about that, but not in a way that it's like, oh, we need to bring a list of things up. We need to make this a conversation. It didn't seem fruitless. And I think it was all for the better. It created a different dynamic between the two characters. It wasn't just about the journalism. And as more and more women came on screen, we see Samantha Morton, who plays Zelda Perkins, and then Jennifer Ely playing Laura Madden, who were two survivors as well as young women. We start the movie, you don't really know what's happening, and we go back to this scene. And I think, again, the way that Maria ends up showing things or not showing things like we see Harvey walking but we never see his face and I absolutely love that we see these spaces and we hear what I'm assuming are real the real conversations behind it but the rooms are empty the hotel corridors are empty and and it's just the silence behind what we're listening to and there's such a chilling stillness to that and I think that was the perfect way to tell some of these parts that are a bit more dicey or I think if you go too far in one direction you lose quite a bit of the audience and just kind of laying it out on the table was exactly what Maria had to do and what she did and I loved love love that so I think the comparison in that way and how she developed the movie is really worthy of you know it is a spotlight it is in all the president's men yeah I think going to Carrie Mulligan's character, Megan Tui, her postpartum depression, that was something I've actually like never seen depicted as effectively on screen before. I feel like, like you said, it wasn't, it didn't feel like it was to prove a point or that it was something they felt the need to check off as some sort of experience that women could have, but it just felt really authentic to that character. And the way that Carrie, I think, plays Megan is really smart. I feel like it's a great performance from her. And yeah, my heart broke for her when you see her dealing with postpartum. But also, I think one of the most brilliant parts of the movie is actually when you see Megan return to work and you see her face light up, almost like she knows she has this other purpose, that motherhood hasn't fulfilled her in maybe every way that she had hoped and that her role at work is something that fulfills her just as much or that is some sort of escape. You know, I feel like postpartum depression isn't something that I personally can like relate to in my own experience, but it's something that I felt like I really, really understood as a viewer watching this movie. I feel like it was just, it was so, so well done and well thought out. And the same thing with Jodie Cantor with her character. I thought it was great to see her at home and, you know, interacting with her her girls, her daughters, and how we get to see how tricky it is to 
have work-life balance when you're going through a story like this, right? Like her husband is supportive and it was, it was nice to not feel like that was dramatized or that she had some other crazy conflict at home that made it feel like some dramatic soap opera, but there was just genuine struggle there that any like working family would have to deal with when they were encountering something like this. And, you know, seeing her make time to FaceTime her daughter when she's on that work trip and having her think about how she has to explain what the word rape means to her daughter. Like these are all things that I feel like are a lot of times like left to mothers to have to do. And Megan, Carrie's character, brings this up where she says she's worried that all of the trauma that they've experienced like through these cases and just through their lives as women, they carry this and they'll just pass it on to their daughters. And that was just like, that really knocked me out. Like you said about Schrader's direction, I feel like she's not getting enough credit for her direction here. I think that she brings a lot of her skills as a documentarian to this film in the way that she captures both the realism and centers the stories of the survivors. I feel like those are the strongest parts of the script and those are the strongest parts of the film. I think it's so smart how she doesn't actually show any of the violence on screen and this the things that they could have shown. I mean, this movie had the potential to be incredibly graphic with everything that we know about Harvey Weinstein and the things that he did to these women. But instead, we hear these hear their stories and we get these great tracking shots down the hotel hallways where we just hear the voiceover and we know that, you know, we we believe them. It's it's up to us to believe them without actually seeing them. And that I think is is really, really important. I love the use of negative space in the frame too. I think that when you see the women and they're framed sometimes from behind or in profile, they just feel so alone in these spaces. They feel so vulnerable. And even the way that she places the camera when we see like Jody exiting the subway or Megan, you know, walking down the streets of New York. Like even in a crowd, these women feel vulnerable. And that is something that like you experience every day. And the direction, even just the way that she placed the camera and the way that the camera moved, I think really, really exemplified that. And it was it was really impressive. And a part of the story in the movie that jumps on that is how these two thought that there was a chance that it would never be published. And it would never become a thing. So to carry this weight on their shoulders of these experiences and wanting them to be heard, but never knowing if it would happen because Weinstein and his people would fight it and kind of run it into the ground like he did so many times before with other NDAs. And you see them go talk to so many women that don't want to speak because they're scared that he'll once again come back and ruin them like even worse than he did the first time so I think fully understanding that this story is just so much bigger than this singular story and what Megan and Jody did it makes it feel so much grander and again just so much more chilling that there have to be more than you know even the people that they spoke to or have come out so the way that Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan capture that, I think, are great. And they both have moments that make them shine on screen. There are two with Carrie that I really, really love. One is when they are talking to Harvey. And kind of the lead up to this is she is so gung-ho. She loves to be aggressive on the phone and 
to get these people and she's not scared of him. I mean, she probably is, but she wants to fight him. She wants to bring him down. And so does Jody, but she has more of a sensitive touch. So I think seeing her develop throughout the film is also a really empowering moment because by the end, they're both capturing these really important eyewitness interviews and to see their characters change how they understand and capture these stories that even though they take different directions, like I still ended up in tears either way. So I think they were two actors that really nailed their roles and, you know, hearing about the background of them working with Megan and Jody was also really inspiring. So that real connection and charisma is really present on screen too. Yeah, I think what I really like is that Jody and Megan are so different, but we actually never see some dramatic conflict between them either. I feel like a lot of directors would have to fight off an impulse to make some sort of housewives-esque drama at the center of it between the women. And no, they just uplift each other and have a common goal and know each other's strengths and how to work together to get there. And I think that what's what's really smart about it is that Jody, she when she begins the case, she hasn't had experience with sexual assault survivors in a type of story like this. She's used to like large corporate workplace type reporting. So Amazon, Starbucks, these types of large workers rights stories, that's what she's used to. So she's almost looking at this and taking it on at the beginning as a case against Miramax or thinking about how to support workers rights at a company like that. And Megan has the experience of working with sexual assault survivors because at the beginning of the film, we see how pervasive sexual assault is because we get the Donald Trump, every all of the allegations against him and Bill O'Reilly and the Access Hollywood tapes, we see that. So we know and we see that he becomes president anyway. So there's this sort of hopelessness that you feel from the beginning of, you know, do, can this story really do anything? Even if they get all the evidence in the world, will it really matter if Mm -hmm. someone who has allegations against him can become president of the United States? Like, do people care at all? So I think starting the film that way is very smart because not only do you see how many industries effectively it goes across, entertainment, politics, etc., but you also get that sense of, can anyone really change this? And it does, of course. And thankfully, like, we know the outcome from it. And that Harvey's locked up, thankfully, but it's still that feeling that like this is going to continue to happen and it's happening and we have to listen to and believe survivors there or else nothing will change. Yeah, this is one case. And again, at the end, they have certain stats, but like is one enough? Is it going to continue in this direction? And I don't think it'll be 100%, but what Maria is showing and telling is that there is hope and we are moving in the right direction. So Oscar potential, what do we think? Because apparently it was like one of the worst box office openings for a film in history, I guess, but just based on the number of theaters and it making 2.2 million. I mean, the reactions, honestly, to the She Said box office from some people, namely Scott Feinberg at The Hollywood Reporter were disgusting and misogynistic and felt pre-written, mm-hmm. honestly. Like, no one thought this movie was going to do incredible box office. Who thinks that 
a film that is advertised as something that, you know, it's about trauma. It's about sexual assault. Like, this isn't all the president's men, right? It's not like a legal thriller. This is this is a movie about suffering in a lot of ways. And yes, it's empowering, I think, at the end of the day. But people don't want to go to the theater to see this. They just, they don't. And Universal was ridiculous for doing a wide release straight up like they should have done a platform release but again like people are acting like the box office means that the movie is bad and that the movie is just sort of dead and shouldn't be considered for awards that's not the case like films like this don't need box office to stay in the conversation because this is the type of film that the industry and critics tend to respond to I also think that these sorts of movies that are made for adults, that are mid-budget dramas, they, a lot of times, like, they're already in the awards conversation. A movie like Top Gun Maverick, that's in the awards conversation because it did so well. Because it's a film that, you know, captures the moment and everyone saw and it brought movie theaters back and... Moviegoers of all ages went to go see it, sometimes multiple times. Those sorts of movies need box office to get into the conversation because they're not your traditional awards movies. Movies like this can make $4 and they might still be considered for awards because they're relevant and well-made. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we can compare contrast Spotlight and how that did and its performers and it talking about sexual abuse within the church and the irony of that doing so much better at the box office than this has, but I don't think we have to go there. Category-wise, or Oscar-wise, I would love to see this get into Best Picture. I don't know if that'll happen right now, and I'm not sure if any of the performances will get in either. But again, I wish it were a world where they would get in. Like, I saw this movie immediately after. I was like, here we go, another movie. Like I want them to get in in all these places, especially Maria Schrader for director. And I'm not necessarily sure how well it will do with critic circles. And with a budget of 32 million, you know, I wish the spirits would have raised it to that, and not just 30 for everything everywhere. But that kind of kicks it out of that ceremony. So I'm not necessarily sure. I think it really could have a chance in screenplay. I think so, especially because, so, um, Rebecca Linkowitz, who adapted it, I mean, it is a well-known book. The women who wrote the book are very much attached to the movie. They've been going to screenings, they've been doing Q&As. So I feel like screenplay is definitely possible, especially this year with adapted screenplay. Looking the way that it is, most of our contenders are in original screenplay. I do think that Carrie Mulligan has a shot. Um, she's being run and supporting, and Zoe Kazan is in lead. Lead actress is way too crowded, and her performance, while I think it's good, is it's quieter. And like she isn't the one who gets the big loud scenes. Her co-stars are getting them. And Carrie Mulligan has been nominated before, and she has great, great scenes. And I feel like this year we have a couple of films where we could have two people or more from a single film in a category. Like women talking can have a number of women getting in in supporting actress, Claire Foy, Jesse Buckley, but like, can they coalesce around one? I do really love Carrie Condon and Banshees of Sharon. I wonder, I just don't know how the category is going to shake out, but I do feel like Carrie Mulligan has a good chance. 
still. I would love to see her get in. And I feel like she has a few more powerful scenes than Zoe Kazan, which I think helps when you're thinking about Oscar scenes and moments when you think back to a movie. I think that'll help with voters. Yeah. And again, I'm just like, I'm still curious how the industry itself will respond. In New York Film Festival, we had a pretty rapturous screening like there. Mm -hmm. I mean, people really responded to the movie and... I've heard similar things from people who saw it at AFI. And yes, those are festival environments where reactions are typically overhyped. But I do wonder how industry people will respond to it. It's not as much about Hollywood as I expected. So much of it takes place in New York, which I I don't know why I didn't expect that. But it is a very New York movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm hoping they latch onto it because it is about their industry or about something that took hold of their industry. Mm-hmm. So if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I think I would give it adapted screenplay. I think for a procedural that's over two hours, I wasn't scared, but I think if it's not done right, it can kind of drag on. And I think what they all did there and the way they capture scenes and the way they speak together. And I think a really fine detail is how do we get these conversations right? And how do we use the testimonies and thinking about either editing them or using them verbatim? Like, I think capturing all these elements, making me feel so many things throughout this movie and being informational as well, I think was outstanding and deserved for them. I was tempted to say Nicholas Bertel for score because I do really love the score. I thought that was like a perfect score for this movie. And I'm planning Mm -hmm. on, you know, listening to it, adding it to my rotation of scores to listen to while I work. But I actually think I would give Schrader best director. I feel like I was really impressed by her vision of the movie and the way that she really centered the survivor's stories, the way that she chose not to show the violence She also assembled a really strong team with a lot of women involved. The cinematographer, Natasha Breyer. We have Rebecca Lankowitz writing. I think the cast is really strong. Okay, so now let's get into our, I think, first big set of nominations. I know we had the Gotham Award nominations come out, but the Indie Spirit Awards are always really exciting. I think the big takeaways. So... Just a couple of updates with what's been happening with Film Independent and the Independent Spirit Awards. We have gender-neutral acting categories in film and television. So if you hear us talking about acting nominations, we do have combined categories there. So it's just lead performer and supporting. We did have a new category on the film side, which was best breakthrough performance. I thought we had some good nominees here. So there are rules around films needing to be produced in the United States, which is why you won't see international films popping up in categories other than international feature. And in some cases where you might think, oh, that's an international film. Why is that there? Like After Sun, which takes place outside of the U.S. It's still an American production or co-production. And sometimes it just has to meet those criteria to be considered. All eligible films have a budget of $30 million or below, and we also have a John Cassavetes Award, and that budget this year was up to $1 million. 
Our big nomination leaders, though, were Everything Everywhere All at Once with eight nominations and Tar with seven nominations. What did you think of just the indie spirit noms overall and our nomination leaders? I think the noms were pretty great. We kind of assumed with that new cap that Everything Everywhere was where it was going. So to see it leading wasn't necessarily a shock, but I'm very glad that Tar is also up there. These both made all of the big categories with Everything Everywhere making multiple acting nominations plus the breakthrough for Stephanie Sue. So that having sustained itself and these nominating bodies recognizing this March release, I think says some very good things for the rest of this award season. I'm not quite surprised with Tar either. I expected that to do really well. The total shutout of The Whale, I guess, was more surprising. And I haven't seen this yet, but I'm assuming it was made for under $30 million. Mother did hit that $30 million mark, but I don't foresee tons of special effects and all of that happening <laughs> in that movie, <laughs> apart from the prosthetics and the makeup. So that is kind of shocking. I don't think that should put people off from him getting a nomination. I don't really want to talk about a win right now, but the Spirit Awards aren't necessarily leading to the Oscars. Like last year, yes, Troy Kotzer did win at both, but it's not necessarily likely. Like Taylor Page won last year for lead actress and she wasn't nominated at the Oscars. Zola did not show up. So there are some discrepancies. I think it is exciting for Kate Blanchett, for Michelle Yeoh, to be our frontrunners at the Oscars, and they did show up here. So there were some really necessary additions that I think we did need to see in order to continue in the season. Yeah, I think just looking at the acting categories, like our lead actor category, eight of the 10 performers here are women. Kate Blanchett, Dale Dickey, Mia Goth, Regina Hall, Aubrey Plaza, Taylor Russell, Andrea Riseborough, and Michelle Yeoh. Those are great names. But the two male performers who joined them, Jeremy Pope for The Inspection and Paul Meskel for After Sun, both phenomenal performances. So I love this category. I do think it's interesting that both Brendan Fraser and Danielle Deadweiler were left out. The shutout for The Whale is sort of crazy, I think, because that movie was definitely made on a very low budget. And it's sort of obvious that this group didn't like the movie because it didn't appear in screenplay, director, any supporting performances. I know people have talked about Hong Chow and Sadie Singh and Samantha Morton, but Brendan Fraser is the face of this movie and he is the supposed lock to win Best Actor. And in this awards conversation, I think this would have been a really good step for him to hit. You know, if he won Mm -hmm. this award, getting to see his speech, seeing him win. Yes, it's a televised show that not very many people watch, but it's still it's still an award. It can still draw traffic and maybe it's more divisive than people are thinking it might be. And maybe it's just a film Twitter thing. That's very possible. I mean, like you said, though, indie spirits aren't like a foolproof precursor to the Oscars, but they help. You know, they can help in certain situations. And I think the situation where it could have really helped was Danielle Deadweiler. 
I don't really know why she isn't here. She was nominated for a Gotham, and she gives a strong performance in Till, and it's interesting because we can look at United Artists, and we can look at A24, and we can see, okay, for A24, the movies that are doing better with this type of group are Everything Everywhere All at Once and After Sun. And the movies from UA, United Artists, that are doing well with this group are Bones and All, which I was surprised to see get a feature nomination, and Women Talking, which got the Robert Altman Award for Best Ensemble. So that's another note if you're curious why the women and Ben Wishaw of Women Talking didn't show up in the acting categories. You're ineligible from showing up in those categories if you get this award. So we saw this before with Marriage Story. People were really confused it is just a weird little kink in that award and the rule. But yeah, I think we can sort of see, you know, they didn't go for Till and they didn't go for The Whale. The industry could, of course, be different. But I think for someone like Danielle Deadweiler, she needs all of the accolades and support that she can if she's going up against these heavy-hitting veterans like Kate Blanchett, who is gunning for her third, and Michelle Yeoh, who is very overdue. So I think it was unfortunate to not see her here. I think the surprising addition in the performance was Mia Goth for Pearl. Mm-hmm. It was an inspired choice. I love that they took it there. I think also with Aubrey Plaza in Emily the Criminal, it maybe it's only nomination throughout all of award season. But I think that's incredible that these actresses are getting recognized, even in obscure or maybe are just not as heavily trafficked films at least in these types of bodies. And the other nomination I was really surprised by was in director for Helena Rain for Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. (laughs) That's really not a movie I expected to show up anywhere. I mean, and it made best for screenplay. So I love that that's getting credit. Yeah. Speaking of A24, my favorite A24 movie of the year after Yang keeps popping up at these ceremonies, which makes me really happy seeing Koganata in director. Looking at that lineup, he's who I would vote for, even though we have great names there, like Todd Field for Tar and Sarah Polly for Women Talking. I'm glad to see the support for that movie continue. Looking ahead a little bit to the Oscars and thinking about which of these nominations or movies do we think might be Oscar-bound, are there any that jump out to you as being strong possibilities that we're seeing sort of crystallize already. I think all the big ones in Best Feature, I think Everything Everywhere All at Once, that is showing that it can go all the way. Definitely Tar. I think Women Talking, again, like we said earlier, kind of just depends on that release since it was delayed. And I do think Bones and All maybe has a chance at certain awards. It didn't make any of the technical awards here. So I still think what we said earlier tracks but I think we'll see it at least get a few nominations my only thing with after Yang was like why didn't we see Colin Farrell show up I think that would have been a really interesting nomination because that group said women (laughs) very true I do like all these (laughs) nominations a thing that really stood out to me actually was that Tar was nominated in editing and cinematography I really, really hope that this can get many nominations with the Academy and throughout the season at Guilds. Seeing Tar's cinematography pop up in particular was important because 
even more important maybe than this is that Tar recently won the Camera Image um, Golden Frog Award, which I saw on the official Tar account and I looked into that because I remember hearing about it in the past. And if you look at the, the winners of this award, there are some Oscar bound films here. Last year, Come On, Come On won, which that didn't carry over. But before, we've had Nomadland, Joker, Lion, Carol. There have been some great films that have won this award. So, And Florian Hoffmeister does an incredible job, I think, as the DP of the film. So I really hope that this can be our sort of sneaky cinematography play mm-hmm. this year that pops up at the guilds and then carries over to Oscar. I think we also need to talk about Paul Meskel and if that can happen because people keep talking about, you know, who's going to get into actor. Actor is so thin this year. And I think people have sort of solidified three people who seem a little bit more sure. Brendan Fraser for The Whale, Colin Farrell for The Banshees of Inisherin, and Austin Butler for Elvis. I think that those are the three most people can agree on. But then there are these sort of wonky extra two spots where we're not really sure who it can go to. Is it Diego Calva for Babylon? Is it Bill Nye for Living? Hugh Jackman for The Sun? Will that come back around? But the thing is, is like Paul is really hitting where he needs to early. Like he has a Gotham nomination, now an Indie Spirit nomination a British independent film nomination, and a European film nomination. I think there's a real shot that he could win a major critics prize, like LA or New York. I know we've been talking about Colin Farrell winning one of those, but I think there's a strong chance that Paul can win one of those too. And people really love After Sun and love his performance. It's a different kind of performance. It's very sensitive but I loved it, so I'm really hopeful that he can somehow be that surprise best actor mm-hmm. nominee. The other thing that's hard about, you know, who can go in those two spots is are we going to have two first time nominees in the category, let alone three or four? So Or five. <laughs> it yeah. could be five. That's the crazy part. <laughs> I mean, if that's the case, then really let's throw anyone else in there like i mean this whole tom cruise thing i'm not entertaining it but no we're not doing that (laughs) you know he's been around for a while and if we're gonna put things that way then i think that opens the door to many other actors so does paul mescal's chance depend on how he does with critics i don't know yes and no i guess in the same way that the worst person in the world was last year like it could have just shown up in international feature but it did get a few more so after sun i feel like could have that trajectory where maybe it does get a screenplay nom maybe it does get an actor nom or maybe comparing it to the lost daughter is a little better because that did really well that one film last year at the indie spirits i guess the short answer is yes i think he has a chance if he keeps playing the game i'm gonna campaign for him <laughs> I would love to see a nomination. I think this performance is genuinely great and it would be, it's just always exciting to see actual like real new talent. But then again, I also Mm -hmm. don't trust the actors branch after what they (laughs) pulled last year. So (laughs) I don't necessarily see a SAG nomination coming for him. No. When you said Tom Cruise, my first thought was SAG. Yeah. (laughs) 
But I do see a BAFTA nomination for Paul. I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, with the juried picks especially, I think he can get in there. One other fun little note. You talked about editing. I love the TAR cinematography nom because I think we have to think about things in terms of best picture nominees and having those pictures get other nominations in other categories. And I think TAR is the perfect movie to get some of those technical nods along with the bigger ones. My favorite one here that, again, I did not expect to show up was Marcel the Shell's shoes on showing up in editing. Yes, love that. (laughs) Nothing I ever considered, but again, A24 coming in hot. And even if it doesn't show up in editing, maybe this does help its chances in animated feature. I hope so. I like I got really excited when I saw that because I thought, okay, this can show up in animated feature for sure. Like let's make it happen. It's it qualifies. It's such a good movie. I loved it. Thinking about a screenplay now for a second, I have to bring this up. We didn't see Armageddon time here, which did appear at the Gotham Awards. We didn't see Armageddon time in any category. So I'm sort of wondering if that movie, and I know obviously that the industry is different, but I am wondering if that movie is gone. It won't really come back. But we had Catherine called Birdie, the Lena Dunham movie, (laughs) pop up again here. So it does have love behind it. And again, I know there's no industry crossover, but or very little if there is any. But I think that's possible in adapted screenplay. Yeah, I kind of laughed when I saw that because we had talked about that earlier about Lena. I mean, maybe she can. We'll see. It's exciting. These awards don't take place until March. So we do have a long time before they're announced. But I'm very excited for the screener portal to open and to watch a lot of these movies that I still haven't seen yet. A lot of the documentaries and some of these international features, especially, I'm really excited to watch. And Emily the Criminal. You mentioned that. I haven't Mm -hmm. seen that yet. Yeah, I haven't seen quite a few of these. I need to watch a love song. I want to see Regina Hall and Home for Jesus, Save Your Soul. However, she's crazy so good that in is. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then Our Father, the Devil, which is the obscure one to me that made it into feature, but mm-hmm. incredible that these smaller movies are. And I think last but not least, I have to call out Joel Kim Booster for getting in for Fire Island for best first screenplay. Mm-hmm. We've talked about that movie quite a bit. I love that it is getting recognition through the award season. And it is just more than a summer movie. Yeah, so again, I'm really excited about these. I think especially about Tar. Really, really exciting to see that that's just staying in the conversation. And I know that our listeners are excited about Tar too and everything everywhere all at once. So the season, I think right now, I'm hoping it's shaping up to be a good one that Hopefully, some of these independent movies can be included in as we get into industry awards. And next time on Oscar Wilde, we have a fun holiday anniversary episode. We'll be celebrating the 75th anniversary of Miracle on 34th Street. I'm excited to get into the holiday spirit here, and we will have a special guest joining us for a new game. Well, a new iteration, not an old game, I should say incredible i can't wait for this i love holiday season and all the movies we'll get to talk about thank you everybody for listening feel free to rate review and subscribe if you like our show you can also find us on socials at oscar wilde pod and also at patreon.com slash oscar wilde with some fun bonus content thanks for listening we'll see you next time